And um, as you find your place there, if you would, take out your lesson sheet for this evening. And we'll be walking through what is going to feel and look initially like a host of notes. But not all of these are we going to hit on in particularly long fashion this evening. Some of this is to give you to, to look at and study and uh, follow along. We Again, if you find your place there in James chapter uh, number 2. And uh, I don't know why it made me think of this. I said turn to the book of James. We studied the book of James. Actually, I remember particularly it was, it was right around the time that COVID began. In fact, I think because some of those... Uh, we did <clears throat> virtually some of those lessons and sermons through the book of James. And when I was a kid, I don't know what made me just think of this, but I'm going to tell you anyway. As a kid, I um, um, I would always get excited when the, whoever was speaking would say, turn to the book of James just because it's my name. And um, I didn't really know much at all about the book. And uh, I remember being, I don't know, maybe 9, 10, 11 years old and hearing somebody say that they had a... A life verse, and I didn't know what in the world <clears throat> really that meant. And um, I, I assumed over <clears throat> quickly over a conversation that um, you were supposed to have a life verse. I just I figured that out, and so I didn't know what to pick. <clears throat> like I said, I was nine, ten years old, and um, so I just randomly threw out a reference and just said, "It's James," and then I don't even remember the exact reference. Um, I just threw it out there and just said, it's James such and such. And so I said, well, what is that? I said, well, I don't remember exactly what it is. And uh, so we proceeded to look it up and it talked about caring for widows and feeding the orphans and different things. And so as a nine, ten year old, I had a very deep um, relationship with my Bible at that point, evidently. And um, I don't know why I thought of that, but when I said turn to the book of James, that's what I thought of. Um, we're going to try to go a little bit more deep than that this evening and um, stick a little bit closer to Scripture and doctrine tonight as we get started. Uh, last week, you know that we started or began looking through <clears throat> our mindset as church members. And whether you're a member here of this church or a prospective member, someone who's interested in joining, and uh, this is sort of something that we want to offer eventually to those that are um, prospective members, but we want to to also be on the same page as these as existing church members. And uh, we don't ever want to just assume that we know something or that assume that we are on the same page on something. So we're walking through some of these things. And we mentioned last week that we we kind of went in regards to why we we established that. Why do we need to have this mentality? And why do we uh, think so fiercely about belonging to Christ's community uh, the community that is the church that he died and bled for, gave his life to form. And so it's important, of course, to him. Uh, in the last couple of years, there's some very uh, prominent ministries throughout the country that uh, they, they upped their online platform, I guess you'd say, as a church or as a preaching ministry because of the nature of many people staying at home initially and COVID and different things. And uh, there's some that even like kind of transformed or formed themselves into what they call an it's an online church and uh, they describe it in a number of different ways they have community kind of ideas you could text or talk back and forth with other members but there is something and we closed with this last week that there is something about face-to-face interaction and actual real relationship with physical people 
that I believe the Bible calls us to, that you, you cannot substitute for that. And I don't believe that God intends for us to do that. You remember in the book of 1 John, we kind of closed with that verse last week. We, remember we talked about chapter 12, uh, or verse number 12. 2 John's a very short book. And uh, in verse 12, he basically says, there's a whole lot of things I could write to you about, but I'm going to wait until I see you face to face. Remember why he said that? He says that your joy, that our joy might be filled and accomplished in that. He says, there's real joy in belonging to one another. And last week we talked about that word belonging. This week we're going to talk about these other two words, welcoming and gathering. We gave you kind of eight themes that we're going to focus on in the next few weeks. Last week we talked about belonging to one another. That we don't just belong to God, but that He has called us to belong to each other. And that He teaches that very implicitly in Scripture. That just as much as we belong to Him in our salvation, and He gives us a relationship with Himself and with God as our Savior and as our Father, He also gives us new relationship with others that are believers, brothers and sisters in Christ. And there's really no other comparison to it. And that we don't join a church or community because we're bringing our strengths, but rather because we bring our needs. And because God has called us to be a part of a church body, a group of believers, to be edified and joined together for the purpose of being changed and transformed in His image, and then living out the mission that God has given us, and to do those things together. So, we won't rehash all of last week, where we focused on belonging, but we finished last week the one thing that we didn't hit, and I'll just mention it, it was at the end of last week's notes, some kind of... Uh, struggles sometimes to a sense of belonging. There was four words there. It was sensationalism, mysticism, idealism, and individualism. Meaning that sometimes there's this hindrance to really belonging to God's people because of sensationalism. We want it to be something different than what it is. We want it to be an experience. We want it to be certain things. And there are great ideas or there's great things and experiencing things as part of the church body. We've all been to uh, different rallies or a revival service or a conference or whatever it may be. But God has not called us to fuel and feed ourselves on those things alone. But the, 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 the consistent channel by which He edifies His people is through His church. Then we say there's mysticism, this idea of, well, I connect to God differently than somebody else connects to God. But we should be connecting to God through the way that Scripture informs us to do that. Then we said that there's idealism, meaning I have an idea of what church should be and somebody else has an idea of what they think church should be. And those two ideas are not compatible. But in reality, what we should be doing is going to God's Word and finding what His idea about church is and falling in line with His instruction. And then just our natural sense of individualism. I am who I am and no one's going to change that. But in reality, God calls us to humble ourselves, to put ourselves beneath His Lordship as Jesus, the Savior, Christ of the world, and also to put ourselves in submission to one another and to each other as Christians, as part of the body of Christ. And so... And now I feel complete. We have finished last week's lesson. Now, if you would look tonight, we're going to focus on two more of these ideas or themes. And they're at their core, at their essence, they are gospel themes. And so while we think about these and focus on these for the next few minutes, I want you to be 
having in mind your part, the opportunity that God gives us in this, but then also the responsibility that we carry as well. And we said last week that these are not in any particular order. It's not like you have to establish this theme as a church before you can move on to this theme. They're sort of kind of all-encompassing, you know, like the pieces of your car. Should your car have uh, an engine block or should it have a radiator? Which one? Well, it it should have both. (laughs) Should it have uh, a battery or should it have an alternator? It, it, It should have both. And the same way, same thing is true in God's church. These are not things that you pick and choose and establish. We focus on these things more than these things, but rather we fall in line with God's teaching about his body, about the church. And so the first one tonight there that you see is that the church should be welcoming. And as we look at this, of course, a church should be kind and warm and cordial in its demeanor. But what I mean by that is is actually a little deeper meaning. And what Scripture teaches is a little deeper, deeper than just smiling and shaking a hand. And I appreciate this morning, we, we had a... Um, uh, a good number of visitors who we just kind of looking around the room. There was 20 or 21 or so people that aren't a part of our church that aren't, haven't been here before. Or I, I didn't recognize them that were here and gathered with us this morning, whatever brought them this way. And I'm glad that we're friendly with them and we shake their hand and we smile at them and we say a kind word. But when I mean that we should be a welcoming church, it's deeper than that. It is deeper than just greeting one another in our relationship to outside people, outside of the church body, and also inside the church body. We should be welcoming. Maybe another word that we use, that Scripture uses, is hospitality. That we are given to be hospitable people. You say, this doesn't seem like a primary thing. What should we be focused on? This is just where we're going to start, but it is. It's somewhere important because... How we are as a church in welcoming others, inside and outside, how we treat others, is a statement about what we believe about our relationship with Jesus. It's a statement about what we believe about the gospel. And so if we have our minds in line with the gospel, this is what we will really be. Do we want to be a welcoming church that shows relentless commitment to the gospel? Do we really want to be a welcoming church? And what would that look like? And how would things be different in our own lives? I want you to look. We won't turn there because you have it in your notes. But Romans chapter 15. I want you to notice this. Paul <clears throat> writes the book of Romans. And it's, it's one of the most doctrinally dense, full books. Every single chapter is another doctrinal statement. It is doctrinal teaching. One thing after the next. Big concepts of God and the gospel and sin and the world and mankind and the relation. But a lot of what Paul writes in the book of Romans is about the response between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. And that's a big part. And unifying, bringing them together under the scope of the Gospel, under the umbrella of the blood of Christ and His sacrifice. It's interesting, as he begins to close out the book of Romans with that concept in mind, unified by the Gospel, here's what he says in Romans 15.5. Now the God of patience and consolation grants you to be like-minded one toward another according to Christ, that you may be with one mind and one mouth, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Doesn't that sound like 
a great church. Like, like, doesn't that sound like something we desire to be? He says, I, I hope that you'll be like-minded, unified one toward another according to Jesus Christ. Not because one group fell in line with another group or this priority or this person's mindset kind of superseded over everyone else's, but that you'll follow together in Christ. You'll be unified in that way that you might have one with one mind and one mouth glorify God. That sounds Wonderful that with a church unified in their glory that they're bringing to God. But notice the last verse, verse 7. So how are you going to do that? He says, wherefore? Why is that there? It's pointing back. It's saying, so do this. If you want to, if you want to have the same mind one toward another through Christ, and with one mind and one mouth you want to glorify God, so what should we do? Verse 7. Receive ye one another as Christ also received us to the glory of God. That word receive there literally means to welcome. It's not saying receive like I receive a gift, but it's sort of, you imagine, a receiving line, a place where someone's going to accept interactions with one another. We're going to receive and bring someone into our home or our work or whatever it may be. It's a relational word meaning to welcome. And so what he's saying is if you want to glorify God with your mind and with your mouths and you want to be unified together as a church, welcome one another as Jesus has welcomed you for the glory of God. And think about what he's picturing and saying there. He says, when Jesus, Savior, perfect, sinless Savior of the world, died and rose again, for mankind, that they could be saved, that they could have relationship restored to their Creator and the God of the universe. And in the same way that it brings God glory, when Jesus says to a sinner, I welcome you, regardless of life, regardless of actions, regardless of sin, not based on your merit, not based on what you've done, not based on having your life together, not based on figuring it out, not based on anything in yourself, It is only through Jesus Christ who God sent Himself to this earth. Only through Jesus. In the same way that when He receives a sinner, it magnifies the grace, mercy, and glory of God. He said, in the same way, you can do the same thing when you welcome and receive one another. So you see the importance. It is more than shaking a hand and smiling at one another and being nice in the hour that you're gathered on Sunday morning or when you see or interact with somebody. It is far deeper than that. Because Jesus didn't just shake someone's hand. When, when you come to Christ, He didn't just shake your hand and give you a smile and a nice pat on the back and say, welcome to the family. He gave His life for us. He shed His blood for us. And with that sort of gravity, He says, bring and welcome one another into God's family in the same way that God glor- Jesus glorifies God by welcoming you. And so we have no right to be welcomed into, by Jesus into God's family, but through faith we can receive Him. So how then can we not receive others? It's amazing how churches, and I, I don't want to speak ill of churches, other churches, and I don't want to just look down on our church and our own issues and our own problems as individuals and Christians. So speak in the broad scope that we have this sin nature and bent in us sometimes to be divisive one to another, even as Christians, to separate ourselves one from another. We, we spend more time figuring out why we cannot be 
what we should be with one another than we do spending time on being what we should be toward one another. And ultimately, what Jesus is calling to receive us one to another, why is it that Jesus can receive us, horrible, deplorable, wicked sinners, into the family of God, and then use and transform our lives as we follow and obey Him? Why can He do that, and yet we feel somehow we have the authority or uh, the sake, or whatever it may be, to not extend that to others? Jesus doesn't say, get everything in line. And be everything that I will eventually make you and want you to be. And then you can come to me. Jesus does the work in us. And he knows that until we see him, we will not be exactly like him. And yet, in the meantime, he loves us and works with us and guides us and is patient with us and extends mercy and grace to us. And so if Jesus, knowing that we will not be perfected and like Him until we actually see Him, extends that kind of grace and love to us, why then can we not extend that to one another? I say, I, I can't, you can't be with me, I, I can't do these things because you don't line up exactly where I am on this or that or, or we, we're not alike in this way, or whatever it may be, culturally, socially, emotionally, we're not the same. But Jesus says the gospel pulls down all of those barriers. If, if the barrier of our sin between us and God can be torn down by the grace of God, then certainly our cultural, societal differences can be torn down by the gospel as well. I want you to look, if you would. Sin alienates us from God and from others, but the gospel restores us to God and restores us to others. There's a number of references here tonight, and I hope that you'll read and study these devotions. We won't, we won't be hitting all of them tonight, some of them, but there's a lot here. But this is sort of a, a guide for our mind to who we are as church Members. So what, what does it mean to be a welcoming church? I want you to look at James chapter 2. Look at verse number 1. He's going to give us an example of a church that was not welcoming. What did that look like? Verse number 1, chapter 2 of the book of James. My favorite book. No, not really. Um, verse number 1. My, bre- my brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ the Lord of glory with respect of persons. What a first challenge. (laughs) He says, hey, brothers and sisters in Christ, don't try to live your faith with partiality toward people. It's impossible. Now notice verse number two. For if there come into your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and ye have respect to him that weareth the gay or the nice clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou here, uh, there, and sit here under my footstool. Are you not then partial in yourselves, and are become judges of evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, yet rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he had promised to them that love him? But ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by which you are called? If you fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, what is that law? That thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, you do well. But if you have respect to persons, you commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. Convicted, in other words. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. For he that said, do not commit adultery... 
said also, do not kill. Now, if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. So speak ye and so do as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. For he shall have judgment without mercy that has showed no mercy. And mercy rejoiceth or has victory over or against judgment. What is he saying here? James, as he's teaching, is not just randomly inserting a story. Now, it may not have been a direct story, but evidently James gets word that the church, and James is over the church at Jerusalem, evidently he gets word that they are reacting to certain people that are without the church and within based on outward appearance, based on personality, based on heritage or makeup. And he, and he chooses to use this as an illustration. Now, this exact thing might have happened. Uh, in fact, I think it probably did. But he gives this illustration. And he says, you cannot live your faith in Christ, the Lord of glory, and also live by judging others outwardly or by who they are as individuals in comparison to yourself. He gives this example. He says, if somebody comes into your church or your gathering, your assembly, a man with a gold ring and he looks really nice, and then a man comes in as poor, he doesn't have as much, and you treat them differently, paraphrasing and coming and summarizing, here's what James says, that is sin. He didn't say, like, that's a bad habit you should do better with. He says, that's wrong. That's evil. He says, it's against the law of love that God gave us to love our neighbor as ourselves. So he says, if you're a church and you cannot be welcoming and you cannot be hospitable to people based on the grace of Jesus and not on the merit of those people, then you are failing. You're struggling in sin. In the same way that you can offend the law in one point, you're offending all of the law because you can't get past this one thing. So notice a few things that James points out. He says, be known for deeds of love, not attitudes of partiality. I want you to notice that James chapter 2, verse 1, notice how he says this. Have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice this wonderful phrase. The Lord of glory. The, the master of glory. He says, you cannot have faith in Jesus, the glorified one, and also be hyper-paying attention to the details of everyone else's life and be so offended by them or be so bothered by them or caught up by them that you cannot extend Jesus' love toward others. He says, the Lord of glory, and we wrote it down this way, that, that a church that is in all of Jesus will find it difficult to feel awe or shame toward other people. And that should always be the case. We're going to go a little deeper. Notice, the simple sit-by-us test is a pretty good measure given to us in James chapter 2. And likewise, there's other places that reflect that in God's glory or how he says he's not a respecter of persons in Deuteronomy. Luke chapter 14, Jesus is giving instruction. He says, don't just invite your good friends and rich friends and the ones that are capable to your banquet that are going to be in your merit and they're going to have to repay you a favor one day. He says, invite the poor that you know will never be able to repay you. Why? Because Jesus says the gospel levels people at the foot of the cross. The church that declares the gospel that all people are made in the image of God, and yet all people are also sinners, that they cannot stand with merit before God to earn their salvation. A church that preaches that gospel should also view people through that gospel. And notice, 
the simple sit-by-us test, do we reflect God by joyfully moving toward others that may not be like us in a physical sense or even a spiritual sense? Or do we move away until someone becomes more like us? You know, it's a big deal to be a welcoming or hospitable church. And there's a number of reasons why. Again, you have some other references there. For instance, Titus tells us and Timothy tells us a qualification of a pastor and of church leadership as deacons. It says that they should be given to hospitality. should be grace-filled people and how they even physically live out their lives toward others. This is a huge deal. Why? Notice in James chapter 2 again, verse number 5, because it reflects God's grace. He says, Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith? He says, God has taken anyone and everyone that comes empty and He fills them with grace and mercy. And whether you are poor physically or rich physically, whether you have millions of dollars or you have no money, whether you have houses and accounts and lands and influence and power, or whether you have none of that, He says, all stand empty. That's why in Matthew chapter 5 we studied a few months ago that the kingdom of God is to who? Those that are meek. Those that are merciful. Those that extend grace toward one another. And so it reflects God's grace in that He makes rich those that are spiritually poor. It reflects God's kingdom. Verses 5, 6, and 7. He says that we're heirs, in the verse 5, the heirs of the kingdom as He had promised to them that love Him. But you have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do they not blaspheme that worthy name by the which you are called? And he implores, he kind of used this as old, really good comparison. How would you like it if someone treated you that way? That's what James is saying. How would you like it if someone treated you a certain way because of your status or something that they could outwardly see? He says, friends, the gospel removes that from us. We are not bound to judge others by what they're like or what they enjoy or what they have or what they don't have. We are set free from having to see people that way. A lost world must view people that way. And they must agree, or if they do come to some sort of unity and agreement, it's because they're making some concession one way or the other. Well, I'll be okay with your issues if you'll be okay with my issues. But at the cross, all of those things are taken before Christ. It reflects the law of love. You see that in James 2, verses 8 through 12. It says, If you fulfill the royal law of Scripture, according to Scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, you do well. God's church should be displaying God's law. And Jesus says, as much as the Old Testament says, don't kill people, don't commit adultery, don't take God's name in vain, don't covet and don't steal, as much as God's law says don't do those things, God says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And then second, like unto that, love your neighbor as yourself. Or who is his neighbor? And Jesus goes on to tell, even the worst of our enemies becomes our neighbor in light and view of the gospel. So it is important that a church be a welcoming church. Now, we'll stop here for just a second. It doesn't mean that we are welcoming of sin. And it does not mean that we approve of evil. But it does mean that we have such fierce belief in the gospel that no matter who walks through the doors of our church, we believe that Jesus can change them. And so without fear, 
we can welcome them. And without some sort of anger and animosity and change yourself so you can then come to us. Aren't you glad God doesn't do that? Change yourself and then you can come to me? But rather come to me and I'll change you? We can have confidence that someone can walk through the door with issues and problems. That doesn't mean that we put people in danger. And it doesn't mean that we condone outward sin and then participate in that or turn a blind eye to it. But it does mean that we can relationally let people see that they are welcomed into the gospel of Christ. We're comfortable not with sin, but we welcome and it's not that someone should come into the church that's living in some outward sin or egregious. All of our sin is outward and egregious before God. But it is not that we say, well, we pick and choose what sins are allowed through the door, what sinners are allowed through the door. We have no say in that. Scripture doesn't teach that we can decide who the Word of God is going to change and work in their life. And it doesn't mean that someone should be able to come and sit in our midst comfortable in their sin but they can be comfortable among the family of God. There is a difference. They can be uncomfortable in their sin because of the preaching and teaching of God's Word and the testimony and lifestyle of God's people might make them uncomfortable and even convict them of sin. But their place among God's people can be one of welcoming. Sometimes we miss this. I want you to notice on the next page that grace produces a welcoming people. Ephesians chapter to really all through Ephesians chapter 2 talks about how God has joined us one to another. But Ephesians chapter 2 verse number 13 says, But now in Christ ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. We are not only bound together by the image of God and the blood of Adam as sinners, but now as Christians Christ binds us Himself a stronger tie than ever before. You are like other humans because you're created in God's image. You're like other humans because we all have a sin nature. But once Jesus redeems a person, we are more closely aligned and attached to that individual than we have ever been to anything else in this universe in a physical sense. And it should be that it shouldn't be that God's people have issues with welcoming others. Jesus had no problem welcoming others who have been marginalized, but he's clear in his word that he has a huge problem when his people do the same. How often did he scold or get on to the disciples or the apostles about their view of others or their restricting of others? We struggle to welcome and invite others and bring them toward Christ because sometimes we don't understand the work that God has done in us and we don't always believe that in time he can do the same for them. And that's a rebuke on us. And so we won't spend a lot more time here this evening, but I just want you to think, that: are we welcoming Christians? Again, don't mishear me and don't think that this is some sort of move in, in our own hearts or lives to try to say, well, we're going to welcome and affirm sin or a, a sinner's place. In the we're not to do that. The Bible doesn't do that. But it, rather, it presents a very uncomfortable position for the sinner, between the sinner and their God. But you know what's interesting? The Bible never presents the relationship between the Christian and the world in the same way. He never presents the Christian as righteous that can reign and rule and judge over sinners and condemn with no option of hope and mercy. And so whether it is toward another Christian that is within our church, we welcome. 
and we bring and we edify and we lift up, knowing and confident that the work that God has done in us, He can then do in others. And this may not, you may seem like, well, this, of course, this makes sense. We should be welcoming. We bring people the gospel. It's shocking how many churches build this wall and this hedge around themselves, not a physical one, but a mental and emotional and relational one that are uncomfortable and feel awkward if anyone interjects themselves into that community that are closed off. They say they preach the gospel and reach out and they may have a witness and they may tell and give people the gospel in a verbal sense. But in reality, they say, you cannot come in. We will not relate to you. We will not love you until you are like us. But Jesus never displays that. He lives his three and a half years. He lives 25 years among people like we talked about this morning that are ultimately going to turn away from him and reject him. He lives for three years of ministry teaching apostles that just didn't get it. I mean, Jesus raises from the dead and the angel says he's risen and, and he's going to go sit by the Father. And the disciples still say, well, what about the kingdom? When's he going to come set up the visit? They still didn't understand. And yet Jesus had patience and this welcoming hospitable spirit toward them because he loved them. And he knew the work that God could do in their life. And aren't you glad that God is patient with us? And we then can be patient with others. You have these action steps. And we'll move on to the second point in a moment. But you have these action steps for welcoming others. We won't focus on that. I want you to take a chance and maybe just take an opportunity to discuss them as a family or as friends or as a couple a little later. But... We reflect on how we, how gently and graciously Jesus welcomes and brings us. We should have an outward view of all human beings. Meaning, we look out and we see the opportunity for God to work in someone's life and bring them in. I mean, what better statement of the power of the gospel? There is this war. The Bible tells us that we are at spiritual war with, with powers and principalities and evil what other war has ever been won by absolutely decimating the enemy by bringing them in as family and friends? I mean, there's nothing else in the whole world that has ever done that but the gospel that wins its war with love by bringing them in. We ask God to search our own hearts. In our gatherings, we search for those uh, that are by themselves. Notice, this is I, I, these are not original to me, these three that are under number three is came across them. Somebody posted on social media, an apologetics writer, McLaughlin's the last name, and she said her husband has these rules for her family. I think they're pretty good. She says, an alone person in our church gatherings is an emergency. Think about it. Somebody that is alone, that comes in, that's willing to come into our church and into our presence and into our community, it is not that they are privileged to come be amongst us is that we have the privilege of extending God's love toward them. It's an emergency when someone... Now, it doesn't mean one individual. It could be a family. It could be a, a couple. It also could be a church member. Because there are people in our church, and I've found out that a hard way and difficult way to my own rebuke as a pastor, speaking to people. And it's hard sometimes to get all the way around and sense it all. And that's why God brings us together as a community. Jesus had... 
12 really close relationships. It may be extended a little bit further than that amongst apostles and disciples. He ministered to multitudes, but he poured his life into just a handful. And he exemplifies that to be the church in the same way, that we find people and pour our lives into them. I have found difficult and the hard way that there are people within the church that are absolutely alone. That, that have been members of the church or this church for a long time or members of a church for a long time that are living in solidarity in their minds and in their hearts. And it should not be so. We should ask the Lord, the Holy Spirit, to give us guidance. Who's alone? And that's an emergency. We should also, friends can wait. And if they're understanding, they should be welcoming too. I mean, when we gather ourselves together we welcome and bring in, we set aside the relationships that we already have for a moment to offer relationships that Christ can restore. And then we introduce them to somebody else. That's just a practical thought. And then you can see the others there. Number two, let's look at this for a few minutes before we close the gathering of the church. So we should be a welcoming church. We should be a church that senses their need to belong to one another like we talked about last week. But we should also gather We know that the church, we say it often, or at least I say it often in my mind and sometimes in sermons, the church is more than a building. And it should be more more than a group of services. The church is not only we have met this week, and so we are a church. It cannot be that. That is not make a church. However, we also don't ignore the fact that gathering as a church is absolutely vital, specifically for corporate worship. I want you to look at Hebrews 12 for a moment. Page, a couple pages over probably for you from the book of James, Hebrews chapter 12. And look at verse 22. I want you to look at the explanation that the writer here gives when God's people come together themselves. He talks about Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. He talks about the old covenant. He talks about Jesus being a better covenant. But notice, in verse number 21 says, So terrible was the sight that Moses said, uh, I exceedingly quake in fear. He talked about the presence of the Lord and the old covenant and seeing God in those ways. Then notice verse 22. He says, but you, ye, you people, you, the church, you are coming to Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven and to the God and judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Look down at verse number 28. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. He says of the church, you're gathered because you're consumed by the God that has saved you. I mean, what? there's a lot of things that should make us passionate in our gatherings. The, the prayer, the music we'll talk about in a moment, singing, rejoicing, the rebuke, the repentance, the learning, and the growing, all of those things. But notice what he says that those first few verses we read. He says, you gather in the presence of God in a different way, a city of people made to a living God, the general assembly of the church of the firstborn, written in heaven. Your name's now written, the God, the judge of all, the spirits of just men now made perfect. Jesus, this mediator of our... Jesus has connected a group of people with their Creator. Should they not want to gather and be together? I I mean, you're part of... 
I use this word, I don't want to sound frivolous, this club, (laughs) this group of people that we are. It's better than anything else we could join ourselves to. We are part of the group that Creator God of all things has been made whole and restored in relationship with them. How ridiculous does it look if God the Creator saves and works in the heart of certain people in this world and they don't like being together. And when they are together, they're distracted by things other than their God. How ridiculous do we look? How do we not display and and proclaim the gospel when we're distracted by other things? That's why the last verse of that chapter, our God is a consuming fire. I don't know about you, I love fire. And as creepy as that statement just sounded, it's true. Like, I can be showered and in PJ, I don't really wear PJ, I wear sweatpants and sweatshirt. I can be showered, ready to go to bed, brushed my teeth, done everything, and I, am, I can be half snoring. And if someone from my family comes in and says, we're going to do a fire pit outside, I will be there in two seconds. It's just, I'm drawn to it. I don't know why. I just stare at it. You can ask my family. There are moments we could, I could sit for hours and just stare into flame. I'm not sure why that is. It may be an issue or a problem. I'm not sure. I enjoy it. But he says our God is a consuming fire. You can't look away from Him. And yet, His church sometimes gathers and looks everywhere but Him. They pay attention to everything else, all the peripherals, all the other little things and all the details, and is not consumed by the glory of their God. Notice, we're going to look very quickly, and we'll finish with this passage. It'll be the last one that we really focus on. Acts chapter 20. What do we do as a church? We belong to one another. We welcome one another. We welcome others. And we are passionate about gathering together in whatever form that may be. Acts chapter... Oh, the whole book of Acts gives us a lot of precedent on... You know, there's nowhere in Scripture that says... Here's how you gather. Here's what time you gather. Here's what you do when you gather. The Bible doesn't give us that. It doesn't give us law of gathering. He gives us some liberty, some ability, some freedom. And I think that part of the reason that he does that is he knows that people are different. Some Christians live in a farming community. Some Christians live in the middle of a city. Some Christians live near the Arctic. Some live near the equator. And there's different needs and different things that come into play with that. But there are certain principles that God calls His people into gathering that are unmistakable. And we see some of them in Acts chapter 20. It's actually a fairly humorous story. But look at Acts 20. Look at verse number 7. Upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. So Paul's preaching, and you may feel like that's the case. It's not. Paul's preaching, and he says, I've got to leave tomorrow. I'm going to pack everything in. And it almost kind of insinuates this. He's speaking with them, question and answer. He's discussing things, but he's also speaking a monologue at times to them. There were many lights in the upper chamber and when, when they were, where they were gathered together. So they're gathering in the evening together, and he keeps going till midnight. There sat in the window a certain young man, and Eutychus being fallen into a deep sleep. And as Paul was long preaching, he sunk down with sleep and fell down from the third loft and was taken up dead. Don't, don't laugh. You guys just laughed in an awkward way at that. 
our teens are sitting in the balcony tonight, and I, don't, I haven't seen any of them that are dozing off yet. It says, And Paul went down and fell on him, and embracing him said, Trouble not yourselves, for his life is in him. And when he would therefore come up again, and had broken bread and eaten, and talked a long while, even till break of day, so he departed. And they brought the young man alive, and were not a little comforted, meaning that was wonderful to them. Now, there's a lot of things. And it's, isn't it just like a, a pastor, a preacher, a, a guy falls from the attic after he's preaching so long, dies in the midst of everyone, hugs him, he comes back to life, and he turns, he says, it's all right, he's good. Everything's fine, props him back up, let's go back to teaching tonight's lesson. And as humorous as this story feels and seems, there are some principles here that we find all throughout the book of Acts that are sort of confined for us here. And here they are. We'll mention them and be done. Number one, the first day of the week has been the day that Christians regularly come together for worship. And that is, that's a legitimate discussion to have. The this Jewish Sabbath is what would be on our Saturday. Why don't we gather on the Sabbath? Why don't we carry out Sabbath law the way Jewish people do? We can't get into all that discussion tonight. God, Jesus tells us very plainly that we are set free from the law, that we are brought from an old covenant to a new covenant. And Christian people throughout all their generations have gathered first day of the week. Why? Because Jesus consecrated the first day of the week by rising from the dead on that day. And if our gathering is focused on Him, then we focus on the same. The day set apart by the Lord's resurrection. It's a holy habit that God instructs. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. We know the very familiar verses to us that we should gather together and uh, provoke one another or move one another to love and good works, forsaking not the assembling uh, of yourselves together as the manner, that word manner literally means as the habit of some is. You can have a habit one way or the other, the habit of gathering or you establish the habit of not gathering. And Jesus here instructs, or God instructs, it's a holy habit, a good habit to gather together with believers regularly. Number two, listening to God's Word is the consistent primary aspect of gathering. You have a number of verses that are there that teach us that. First Timothy, of course, as he's giving instruction, he says, give yourself to reading, the public reading of Scripture, to exhort and to teach and to preach and to bring these things. And we know the authority of all the teaching of the church must be Scripture. It can't be the church. And that's why everywhere that you see the church teaching, they're going to Scripture for that teaching. They're going to God's Word about Himself, not making up their own word and thought about God. There's a lot of ways you can get in trouble. And we, we look a lot at other churches or other thoughts or other religions and different things and how they establish that. I can give you an example. I came across, was talking to somebody this week, has some roots in the Catholic Church, and they were asking, what's the purpose of... And there's a doctrine the Catholic Church teaches that it's the perpetual virginity of Mary. In other words, that she was a virgin before Jesus after Jesus, and all the way through her life, that she remained a virgin in a physical sense. I don't know, they they try to deify her in a way, and this sort of keeps that mindset of she's a greater human being than others, and she she stands before God in a different way. There's not a lot of purpose behind that doctrine, but it's a fairly fairly easy doctrine to just go to Scripture and find. We read this morning in Matthew 13, is Jesus not the son of Mary, is what the people of Nazareth said? And all of her sons, this person, four sons and several daughters, that's not possible, right? It doesn't work that way. And so it's very easy to just go to Scripture 
and establish your doctrine by that scripture. And we laugh at, at maybe that doctrine and say, oh, that's far-fetched, but we often do the same. And so it's important that in our gatherings, authority is always the scripture. Or the authority is always in scripture first. The pattern is made of expounding scripture, exhorting and teaching it, and that there's a significance of scripture while publicly gathering to read it and to emphasize it. And why should we listen to any sermon? And some of you are thinking the same thing right now. Because if the preaching and teaching is truly what God says, then it is authoritative and life-changing. It's a supernatural thing that we are doing together. So sometimes we say, well, I'm going to go to church this week so I can check off that box and do No, God says, you gather because I rose from the dead. You gather because you all have the same hope. You may not have the same job. You surely don't have the same bank account. You don't have the same interests. You don't have the same uh, individual uh, desires. You don't have the same family heritage. You don't have the same race. You don't have the same genetic makeup. You don't have uh, the same uh, uh, social status. You don't, nothing about you is the same except for Jesus. And one day He will eternally bind you together in His presence. And all of those things that make you unique, they will not go away. They will rather be glorifying to God that He saves any and all mankind. And so gathering together is a serious thing that Jesus and the Word of God emphasize. I'll let you look through those helpful hints for sitting under preaching and teaching. You can look through those on your own, but they're important. Some of them have... Some references there, and all of them have a scriptural principle with them, but I, I encourage you to look through that and listen in those ways. Not listening because of who the pastor, who the preacher, who the speaker or teacher for the class or for the day is, but because the speaker of the Word of God is the Father Almighty ministering through the Holy Spirit. At our gatherings, we also preach to the eyes by carrying out church ordinances, the Lord's Supper. You know, meals are quite important in Scripture. Uh, God, Adam and Eve sin. God makes provision for them. He gives them a cloak and feeds them. Right? You have Moses and his people and they go out into the wilderness and God gives them manna. He provides for them. He gives them water at different times. And where are they headed? To the land of milk and honey. Where we tease about really liking food. That's part of what God has done in us and for us. It's why Jesus, when he feeds the 5,000, he feeds the 4,000, they're so enthralled. Because it's this odd thing of eating and gathering. And you may not think of it that way. Gathering to eat and feast together, it's a little different than any other creature that God has created because there's fellowship involved in it. And, you know, the early church, they actually gathered typically for full meals. It was most likely that they would gather, eat a whole meal together, but then they would consecrate a time and say, we're going to take this bread now because Jesus has signified that with his life. His body was broken. We're going to take this cup. His blood was poured out. And the Lord's Supper is actually part of a greater meal. Maybe we'll do something similar sometime. There's no instruction that says it has to be an ill-tasting wafer, you know, the size of a dime and, and a half an ounce of juice that you're not sure if you swallowed it or not. But there's also nothing unholy about doing it that way either. It's the point that we consecrate ourselves together. We visually preach to the eyes in that way. Also through baptism, which is declaring the outward, outward declaring of the inward work that Jesus does in the life of a new believer. At our gatherings, we sing and we pray. As much as we hear from God in the teaching and preaching, and we preach with the eyes through the ordinances, we also hear from God, experience Him in singing and preaching. Why do we love to sing? Because all throughout Scripture and throughout history, when God's works, His people sing. Uh, 
God's work His people, some of the greatest songwriting eras of all of history are when God is actively working in and amongst His people. When God works in His people, they write new songs to Him. You see that oppression and guilt don't evoke adoration, but grace does. And therefore, a healthy church, motivated by grace, sings and rejoices and praises, regardless of circumstance. If I'm oppressed and serve God out of guilt, like He might hurt me if I don't do everything He wants me to do, I don't want to sing for that. Somebody, you know, somebody tells me I have to do this or I have to do that. School, you know, whatever it means. Like kids aren't, you know, they're handed an exam. They don't burst into song. They have to take it. That's what they have to do. But you notice what, when Ellie, no, Ellie sings most of the time, actually, in life test, doesn't matter. But typically, you know when she likes to sing? When she is just free, doing things that she has the opportunity to do, going outside, playing when she's enjoyable and happy. My daughter loves to sing. The same is true in our lives, not motivated by oppression and guilt that God places in our life, but by grace. So a church that has a proper view of the gospel will be a singing church. You have there some notes about the importance of it. And then we have prayer. Of course, prayer fills the pages of Scripture as well. The Lord taught often about and exemplified a praying life, a number of chapters there. The book of Acts often is speaking about the church gathered only for prayer at times. We're going to do that Thursday. There's not a special service or anything. It's just every hour on the hour for the day, for about 12 hours. We're going to commit ourselves to pray, and we should do that. But also in our public gathering, in our services, prayer shows dependence on the Lord. It's us saying publicly and privately, we can't fix us, God. So we ask you to do that. And finally, gathering is a priority in Scripture. The question should not be, will we go? But how can we make the most of the opportunity God gives us when we go? I understand that there's sickness and travel and there's issues and problems. But healthy Christians gather together to rejoice in the Lord. It's something we are convicted. This is not an option. It's not an item on the shelf we decide if we need or don't need. God has decided that we need it. And so we live out this way. I appreciate you listening tonight and last week. The nature of some of these is to be, like Paul, fairly long-winded. There's a lot here to pack in to be able to get it these next, done these next couple weeks. And then we'll gather again into our smaller adult groups on Sunday evening. I hope that you'll plan to be a part of that and invite somebody to be a part of it with you. That's just as much part of gathering as this is or as Sunday morning is. Fellowshipping with other believers, edifying, hearing the voices of God's church. Yeah, there are some final action steps, some things you can do. And I love that last one. Establish special habits, traditions on the day of corporate worship. Look for things that make the day beautiful with your immediate family or your church family. Go to a certain restaurant. Invite certain people out to eat. Some of you are really great about every Sunday going and gathering with friends after you gather for Sunday morning or whatever it may be. You eat a meal or go for a walk. Enjoy part of God's creation. Do something special with your children that make the day, a wonderful day. It, we have stumbled into this, incidentally. We go to my mom's house every Sunday evening. And and um, it doesn't mean that that's a spiritual aspect. But you know what? My kids have started associating joy with the Lord's Day. Like they enjoy going to Nana's house. They love it. They're going to go there tonight and celebrate Nana's birthday and do all these things. They love going over there. It doesn't mean that's a sacred thing that everyone should do. But it's a helpful thing. Because my kids 
they love Sundays. Now, for a number of reasons, they're, they're just like anybody else. They, oh, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. But we build habits in our lives that bring joy, that spark the liberty that God has given us. And we follow him in gathering together. And hopefully you'll read through those and apply, we'll apply those to our lives. We're going to close for tonight and be dismissed in prayer. And next week, if you would, I hope that you'll come back. I promise that next week, the nature of what we're talking about is going to be a little bit more brief. And it's going to require some interacting with one another. And I hope that you'll be back and plan to be a part of that as we finish out the next couple of weeks with this ministry or membership class as we're part of these things together. All right, let's be dismissed in prayer. And you hang around as long as you want. Some of you noted last week that Spanish ministry started coming in a little different. They changed their Sunday evenings, have grown to where they need to use the auditorium as well. So they've changed their time around. They come in around 6.30 or so. And so don't feel like you're rushed out or kicked out, that kind of thing. But you will see some other people gathering and some things happening. And uh, that's what that is. And you're welcome to use the chapel and that kind of thing and hang around as long as you'd like. Or if you're waiting to pick up kids at 6.30, then that'd be fine as well. But that's that's what's happening. And that's a good thing. And we're excited for them as well. Let's ask the Lord to help us tonight. Father, bless your word. In us, do what we can't do. Give us a desire. We we buck against systems and uh, just naturally, sometimes we're not inclined to want to listen or read or think or sing when we don't feel like singing or rejoice when the circumstances of our life don't dictate that we rejoice and So we need you and your Holy Spirit to move in us and work in us, to give us a holy desire to meet with one another, to sing aloud next to each other, so that on a Sunday morning that a hurting heart is encouraged to hear a rejoicing heart sing, and then together they can come and rejoice before you praise you with their song, with their prayers. And that a struggling heart can sit with, a prudent heart and a, and, a, and a heart on fire for God and both be talked to and spoken to by your Holy Spirit through your word. And so we pray that you'd give us those holy habits and the desire for them in our lives and that we would sense it as our responsibility and our privilege as church people. That wouldn't be something we do to check off a box or keep others off of our back or you uh, appeased, but rather it would be a testament to what we will do in the future that we declare you are risen and you are coming, and you reign over all. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed.